All right, good morning, good morning. Welcome to Temple Baptist Church. Take your song books this morning. Stand if you will, page 58. Page number 58, He the Pearly Gates Will Open. Page number 58. Love divides the great and wondrous, deep and mighty, fierce, sublime. Coming from the heart of Jesus, just the same through tests of time. He, the pearly gates, will open so that I may enter in. For he purchased my redemption. Welcome to the service here this morning. Welcome all of you live stream watchers as well. This song that we're singing, He the Pearly Gates Will Open, it's kind of interesting. We know the pearly gates are about heaven, but yet if you look at the words and you really let them sink into your heart, this isn't a song about heaven. This is a song about the redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ that opens the way for us to go to heaven. And so if you're saved here this morning, you have something to sing about. Because we have a great hope for the future, not only tomorrow, but in all of eternity. And so let's sing from the heart as we sing about what Jesus Christ has done for us. On the second verse. All right, on the second verse, here we go. Like a dove when hunted frightened, as a wounded fawn was I, broken hearted yet he healed me, he will heed the sinner's cry. He the pearly gates will open, so that I may enter in, for he purchased my redemption and forgave. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we once again thank you for the opportunity to come to worship you in spirit and truth, Lord. And Lord, thank you so much for each and every one that came out today, Lord. And just pray that they receive what they need today from your word, Lord. We pray for our pastor, Lord, that uh, you give him great power to preach today, Lord. And 
Lord, most of all, Lord, for that one here who's here today, Lord, who's never trusted you as Savior, Lord, we pray that you talk to their heart especially. Lord, we pray that you bless in this service, and we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, page number 22, page number 22, are you washed in the blood? Page number 22. seated. All right, let me go over some announcements real quick here this morning. First of all, this afternoon we've got several things going on. At 5.15 is our kids' choir, and we're having it uh, 15 minutes early this afternoon because we've got to have a little bit of transition time between kids' choir and the evening service because this evening is our master club and our youth group award night. And so that'll take a portion of the service tonight. There will be preaching tonight. Uh, we will try to uh, uh, be sensitive of the time allotted, and so we won't keep you too late tonight, but there will be preaching. And do come out and show your support and your love to all of our families and especially our children as they uh, receive the uh, awards for their hard work throughout this uh, last school year. All right, uh, then Wednesday at 7 p.m. is Bible study and prayer meeting. On Thursday is a ladies' event at 6.30 in the chapel. 
There are flyers on, uh, in the rack out on the foyer, and so uh, that would have some detailed information about the event. If you have any questions, then see Sister Lynn Mitchell, my wife, or Sister Christina Lemons, and they'll be happy to help you out. And then also Saturday at 8 in the morning, we have a men's prayer meeting right here in the auditorium, and then at noon, we have our street ministry and uh, for now, we're meeting over at the parking lot between Verizon and KFC. Uh, we may uh, consider moving that back downtown for a few weeks or maybe even a month uh, here this summer, uh, just so that we can have an opportunity to get more tracks out. And so if you're new around here and you notice this table up here on the platform that's full of gospel literature, uh, we have a challenge that uh, I believe the Lord has challenged us to get all of this seed out of the barn by the end of this summer. We've made a lot of progress, but we've still got a ways to go, as you can see. And so we're encouraging everyone to participate, whether you hand out tracks to people individually or just leave them on their door or leave them laying somewhere where somebody can grab them and read them. doesn't matter how you do it. It matters that we do it and that we get the gospel out to this world. It does no good having this seed in the barn. We've got to get it out there in the field. And the field is the world and all the souls of people that are out there. I think all of us recognize the fact that we are living in a very needy time, and there are many, many people out there. Probably most of the people that you come into contact are without Jesus Christ, and many of them, believe it or not, even in this community here in the Bible Belt, are ignorant of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have a great challenge. We have a great privilege to tell people about Jesus Christ. And then upcoming, next Sunday evening, we've got missionary Dick Snook from uh, Missions Aviation Fellowship. And then we've also got um, uh, Pastor Mitch Service from Las Vegas is going to be with us. And he's going to be preaching in the evening service. And then one last announcement before we sing another hymn, and that is our Vacation Bible School is just a few weeks away, June 27th through the 30th. We have these flyers that you can grab as many of these as you can use. Try to invite children. We're praying for a 100 kids this year. We're pulling out the stops, doing all the advertising that we can do to try to get the word out. out. But we need your help and getting kids in, grandkids, nieces, nephews, neighbor kids. I mean, grab them, hog tie them, drag them in. I'm just kidding. But do whatever you can to try to get them to come to Vacation Bible School because you never know, this could be the event that changes their life and their eternal destiny. And so um, do be praying about that. And uh, also uh, wanted to just double check, we've asked you to... Uh, to loan us some items for props for Vacation Bible School. Brother Jonathan, we doing okay on that, or we still need some help with that? Okay, all right. Well, if you'll uh, give me an update, if you need me to um, recruit any more help with that, then we'll certainly, certainly do so. All right, let's all stand, get a hymnal, turn to uh, number 134, my anchor holds. 134.
right, good job. Appreciate that. Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Sometimes when I'm praying that hymn that uh, the boys just uh, played for us, I think about that part of that song where the the songwriter says um, that my heart is prone to wander. Do you ever feel that way? Like you get on track, but it seems like everything around you is trying to get you off track. And, um, you know, it, 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 it just doesn't, the Christian life is certainly not a piece of cake. And, uh, uh, there's a lot of things that we have to deal with. But I have to say by, um, unfortunately experience that it's a whole lot better than the life I was living before I got right with the Lord. And so it's a joy to be saved and to, um, to be following the Lord. Take your Bibles this morning and go to the book of Psalms, Psalm 19, Psalm 19. I'm going to bring you part one. I I wanted to bring the message this morning all in one message, and it just was not even possible. The way that I typically study is I start gathering information, I start thinking, I start praying, and Whatever the Lord kind of brings to my mind, I put it on a kind of a, a note paper, and then uh, from that I start compiling it and seeing how the Holy Spirit's leading me, and all of the various thoughts and information, I ask the Lord to put that together in a message. And uh, this message, the, the more that I uh, went into it, the more that I realized that this could easily be about 20 messages, and after I go through that process, uh, typically... I'll, um, a lot of the stuff that I have in my notes, I'll just eliminate it, even though it's like I hate to do that because, man, that's a great verse and that's a great thought, but we just can't do everything in one sermon. And so, uh, anyhow, that's my story behind this two-part message. There's just no way that I could cover all of this in one message. And so we'll give you half of it today, Lord willing, the other half next Sunday. Psalm 19 and verse number 7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, the psalmist says, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Verse number 12, who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. I want to preach this morning on how to boost your sin IQ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Thank you, Lord, for your presence here today. And Lord, I've sensed your presence. And Lord, I pray that your presence would continue. And Lord, that you would feel welcome here in this place among your people. 
Lord, we pray for the spiritual battle that's going on, no doubt, in the unseen world. Lord, as the devil tries to snatch the Word of God out of people's hearts, as the devil tries to hinder through distraction and through things that uh, are don't amount to anything. And Lord, may the Holy Spirit take these truths and Lord, keep us attentive. And Lord, take them from our minds and into our hearts. And Lord, as has already been prayed this morning, we pray for that person that needs it the most that's not saved. We pray, God, that this place, this uh, message would find a place in their heart that you'd use it to bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for all of us here today. We live in a generation that has a very low IQ when it comes to the nature of sin. But Lord, your word and your judgments are true altogether, as David said. And I pray, Father, that you'd help me to bring this message with your power, with your blessings, as you'd have me to. Get glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's commonly accepted by scholars that David wrote this particular hymn uh, around, or excuse me, this particular psalm around 1015 BC, which would be 19 years after he wrote Psalm 32, which is basically a psalm that speaks of his pardon for the sin of adultery and the uh, murderous cover-up that followed. I think if we do the math, we realize that David is talking about these types of sins, secret faults and presumptuous sins. He's talking about it 19 years after he had to recover from a major sin failure in his life. This is the, the Goliath killer. This is the man of whom God said that he was a man after his own heart. A great man of God, a great king, and yet we see that his sin was also great. And the point I'm trying to make here by way of introduction is that David knew a thing or two about sin. He knew what he was talking about. If you read his Psalms, you recognize that David had a very high IQ when it comes to the subject of sin. On a lighter note, Albert Einstein, let's just say, for instance, he's transported in time to North Carolina in 2022. To get acquainted with modern culture, he strikes up conversations with people that he runs into and asks them the question, what's your IQ? The first man he encounters says, 241. To which Einstein responds, that's wonderful. We can talk about the grand unification theory. We can talk about the mysteries of the universe. Next, he introduces himself to a woman and asks her what her IQ is. 144, she replies. Great, says Albert. We can discuss politics and current affairs. I have a lot of questions for you. After an intriguing and disturbing conversation about current affairs, he asks another man, now what's your IQ? To which the man replies, 51. Einstein responds, so, you think the Panthers will make the playoffs this year? (laughs) On a serious note, back to our message, the thing about David is that he understood sin, but he also understood righteousness. He was honest with himself, and he was honest with God. 
He didn't coddle himself emotionally like many of people who profess to believe in God commonly do. His views of sin were based on truth, and they were based upon intelligence. And we certainly live in a very dumbed-down world when it comes to an IQ regarding sin. But what should disturb us most is how mentally and morally challenged, you know, when you think about morally challenged, we talk about people that are mentally challenged, and we know what we used to call them. I know when I was younger, it wasn't politically incorrect to refer to mentally challenged people as being retarded. And I don't say that in any slight toward people who are mentally challenged, but the fact of the matter is we are living in a society that is very morally and spiritually challenged. I I recently was made aware, and let me preface what I'm about to say, that I mean no malice and uh, toward any religion or any true Christians, but I was recently made aware of a split in the United Methodist Church. I've heard little bits and pieces here in the last uh, few months or so, but I didn't really, uh, it, I didn't really grasp the magnitude of what was going on until someone shared a video with me. And in that video, uh, one video was, was uh, from the seminary school at Duke University in which a student is addressing their chapel service, and she refers to God as, O queer one, O strange one, O fluid one. And she's referring to the God of the Bible, and she's referring to Christianity in this light, and basically demonstrating that they believe that the LGBTQ and whatever other letter of the alphabet gets added next is condoned by God and that God's perfectly okay with it. And in fact, the United Methodist Church, in their proceedings, they made official documents basically saying that, hey, this is okay, God condones this, And what God does not condone is for anyone else to criticize or to call that sinful behavior. And so consequently, there is a split in the United Methodist Church. The conservatives, if I understand correctly, are forming the global Methodist Church. And the United Methodist Church is now kind of referring to themselves as the continuing Methodist Church because They're not splitting, they're just going down the same path that they've been heading for quite some time. Now, that's not the worst of it. There is a, there's a seminary student who is applying for ordination in Illinois, and um, he was approved. He was licensed to go through the ordaining process, and this uh, person has two names. He has his, the name that he was born with, and then he has an altar name, kind of a clever name, Penny Cost, Pentecost, and he is a drag queen, and he literally dresses up like a drag queen and preaches to people supposedly representing God. Now, I'm watching your expression, and I know that some of you are probably like, yeah, I heard about that, and then many of you are in shock thinking, are you serious? 
And once again, I mean no malice in all of this, but I'm simply saying that for anyone who knows what the Scripture says and has been listening to God, they know that the way that they are representing Christianity is so far from the truth that it is morally and spiritually challenged. Yes, Jesus did pray for unity, but he had an entirely different concept of what unity is. You know what Jesus' concept of unity is? Is like if there was a circle that we could draw right here, and Jesus says, here is the truth. Here is what God accepts and what God rejects, and here is the way that I want my disciples to live. And so the people that are walking in the light that Jesus has communicated, the light of the Word of God, those things that are pleasing to God, they find themselves in the circle, and because they're all following the Lord, they're not identical, but you have unity, you have peace. And the problem is that people get way outside of this circle, and they want to have unity and peace, but they're not saying we want the kind that Jesus represented. We want all of you judgmental, hateful Christians to get out of the circle and come and join us. And folks, I say this not with anger and not with malice, but I say it with a broken heart because we are so dumbed down in our spiritual and moral IQ when it comes to what sin is. And because of that, there will no doubt in this generation be multitudes of young people that will think that they're okay with God. Listen, if you watch these videos, the people that are presenting this as something that's acceptable by God, you can just see the sincerity in their mind and how that they've found something where, hey, we can live however we want and still be accepted. I got news for you. That never worked for me. It won't work for you, and it will not work for them. And I hope by the grace of God that I can present some truths to you here this morning as well as next week so that we can boost our sin IQ level and so that we can see not only sin the way that it's we're supposed to see it, but even more importantly, we can see ourselves the way that we're supposed to see ourselves. I googled just the phrase, how to boost your IQ, and I found several things on the internet. There were numerous sites available. Most of them started out something like this. How to increase your IQ, 15 steps, or eight ways to increase your IQ. One of them said seven science-based ways to raise your IQ in 30 days or less. And the list just went on and on. There's all kinds of formulas and steps in which we can raise our IQ, allegedly. I don't have any steps for you today, but I do have four areas of understanding that I believe will boost your sin IQ, and we'll cover two of them here this morning. Let me make a statement. This statement, I believe, is true, and it's worth listening to. The more intelligent you are regarding sin, the more likely you are to be righteous, The more intelligent you are about sin, the more likely you are to recover when sin happens in your life. I mentioned David and his high IQ. David committed some horrible sins 
against humanity, against God. But David, because he had a high IQ about sin, he was able to recover and get back on track with God. Oh, he suffered. He reaped the consequences, and we always will. We will always reap the consequences of our sin, but those consequences can be minimized if we repent and get right with the Lord. Ultimately, there are eternal consequences, and thank God, and I don't have time to get into all of it here today, but thank God there is hope for anyone who has broken the commandments of God and committed, no matter how heinous or how disgusting a sin may be, thank God there are ways in which we can get that cleansed, where we can get it forgiven and where we can get our lives back on track for the Lord. David's son Solomon, arguably, besides Jesus Christ, the wisest man that ever lived, he learned a thing or two maybe from his father. And as he was praying at the dedication of the temple, he prayed a long prayer, and there were a lot of things that he said to God about the temple and about the people Israel to whom he was king over. You know, here's a man that was so wise that when God said to him, what can I give you, son? That Solomon said, look, I don't, I don't want gold. I don't want victory over my enemies, but Lord, I just want a wise and discerning heart. I want you to give me understanding so I can effectively lead your people. You know, Solomon was not a shepherd boy like David, but something was passed on from David to Solomon because he had a shepherd's heart for his people. But as Solomon was praying, he made a statement in 1 Kings 8.46. He said, as he's praying, if they sin against thee, talking about the nation of Israel, and then in parentheses he said, for there is no man that sinneth not. I'd say Solomon had a pretty high sin IQ. He understood that there's nobody that doesn't sin. I think there's a lot of people today that they wouldn't come out and say it, but their attitude and their air is like, no, I'm, I'm not a sinner. There's nothing wrong with the way that I live. There's nothing wrong with how I think or what I think or what I do or how I wear or how I treat other people. Hey, I'm okay. I haven't, you know, I haven't killed anybody or murdered anybody. It's easy to take and compare ourselves to somebody that's way, way worse than us and feel righteous. But Solomon understood that there was no man that sinneth not. But then he said, if thou be angry with them. You know, that's something that's lost in today's culture. You know, I, I, I told you about a particular denomination and religion. And by the way, the founder of that particular denomination, John Wesley, listen, he wouldn't turn over in his grave. He'd be spinning. I've read his biography. I've read what he had to say. Let me tell you something what he had planned for his followers was nothing like what has happened in the last 50 years. No way, no how. Listen, it breaks my heart. Yeah, it, it disturbs me. And yeah, I'll be honest, it makes me just a little bit angry because it's, it's deceiving people. But listen, my anger... My righteous indignation toward perversion and toward violence and toward crimes against humanity is nothing compared to a just and a holy God 
to whom we're all going to stand and give an account of one day. Oh, preacher, you're just trying to scare me. Listen, I, if I scare you into righteousness and repentance, then I plead guilty. It's not my motive, but it's my motive to tell you the truth. I don't love you and I don't care for you if I'm not willing to tell you what the truth is. And listen, the truth is lacking in our culture today, and that's why we have such a low sin IQ. And so number one, my first point or my first area of understanding that I want to talk to you about here today is understanding the varieties and quantities of sin. Someone with good intentions, and I've even heard this myself, good intentions but misinformation said this, all sins are equal in God's eyes. Now, I think that perhaps this might have been a well-meaning preacher who had a congregation full of self-righteous people who thought that they were great because they didn't commit these horrible sins, and so they, you know, they didn't, uh, they didn't steal anything from anyone. They just gossiped like they had a three-foot tongue. <laughs> and so, no doubt, a preacher was probably frustrated, and he got to thinking about this, and he's trying to, sh- you know, shock his congregation into realizing that your little sins are just as bad as these big sins that these bad people commit. And, you know, well-meaning, but certainly not true. Now, in our text, David mentions several categories of sin. In verse 12, he talks about errors and secret faults. You know, those are huge because none of us have a really good, healthy view of ourselves. Have you ever noticed in human relations that so often we judge ourselves by our intentions but we judge others by their actions. I mean, we want people to, we may do the wrong action. Well, yeah, I said that, but this, this is why. We want them to understand our intentions, but when they say something or do something, we don't cut them the same slack that we cut ourselves. You know why that is? Because we have evil hearts. We have selfish hearts. And so we don't necessarily understand, just like David said, he said, Who can understand his errors? And he's asking God, he said, cleanse me from secret faults. God, you know who I am and you know what I am. God, help me and cleanse me from these things because I can't even go and take a bath because I don't even see where I'm dirty. Those of you that are parents, when your children were real little, especially the boys, I mean, they go out and they play out in the dirt. Well, they used to. I still think it's a good thing. I think our culture would be way better, our churches would be way better if more little boys played out in the dirt instead of played video games. We'd be a whole lot better. But we've all had children who come in, you know, go go take a bath. And, you know, they go in and they take a bath and they come out. And, you know, it's like the, the things that they could see are clean, but like behind the ears or back here on the shoulder, it's like they still got mud caked all over them. And you're looking at them and going, son, go back in there and take another bath. <laughs> what? I, I did. I'm clean. It's like, oh, and then you, you show them how dirty they are. I think that all of us 
probably, because God is so merciful, and I realize he's a God of judgment, but I think that there's probably times with, especially with our secret faults, that maybe God gets a little bit amused when uh, we act like that, I'm clean, God, I'm right with you, and God's like, really? I just can't help but think that maybe God gets a little amused. But the fact of the matter is there are errors and secret faults. And then David goes on to talk about presumptuous sins in verse number 13. These are the ones that we know about. I mean, we presume, we we, we basically go headlong into it. That's the Proverbs chapter 7, young man without discretion who goes like a lamb to the slaughter like a fool to the correction of the stalks. And then, of course, number three, the great transgressions. There are presumptuous sins that are still littler sins, but then uh, we need to understand that sin is progressive. One of the most intelligent things that you could add to your understanding of sin is to recognize that sin is progressive. Little sins lead to bigger sins, and bigger sins lead to even bigger sins. I've said this before. If you're dirty and you're filthy and you're smelly, you get so used to it that it doesn't bother you anymore. But right after you get clean and you get out of the shower and you're clean and you get, I mean, you you smell good and you feel good, that's not the time that you want to go out and roll around in the dirt and get dirty again. And so what happens is we've got a culture that is just so used to being dirty that they don't even recognize it. There are sins of ignorance, and there is also willful disobedience. You know, if you were to uh, look at Numbers 15, you would find that God has all kinds of sacrifices for sins and you'll find in Leviticus, excuse me, Numbers 15, that there are sacrifices for sins of ignorance. If someone sins a sin and hey, they didn't know, they, they weren't aware of it, it was an error, a mistake, it was innocent, they didn't do it intentionally, they didn't do it willfully, God says, hey, you still have to bring this sacrifice. There has to be an atonement. Uh, as the law enforcement will say, if you ever get pulled over, because you were speeding and you say, I didn't know, not very often is a police officer going to say, oh, you didn't know that that was the speed limit? Oh, I guess you're okay then. They say ignorance is no excuse of the law. And certainly that's the way that God views our sins of ignorance. But I'll tell you what's interesting, if you were to look at Numbers 15, it also speaks of those who sin presumptuously. And you know that under God's Old Testament law, He doesn't provide any sacrifice for those presumptuous sins, but rather He says, that soul shall be cut off from among His people. God says, they're not even going to be part of Israel anymore, they're cut off, no sacrifice no means of propitiation. He says, they're done. So it looks to me like that God certainly distinguishes a difference between a sin of ignorance and a sin of presumption. I mentioned this, I think, this past Wednesday night. I was sharing a little bit of my testimony. 
and how that in my teenage years, all of my high school years, I lived pretty sinful. From my sophomore year up until just before I turned 20, my life was morally and spiritually a wreck. I mean, I look back and I have sins that I committed and sins that I desired to commit that just were, were huge. I, I couldn't even name them. I couldn't list them. But I know that that was my lifestyle. And when I got right with the Lord, I just thought, man, there's no way that God could ever use me again. And people would say, well, Randy, your, your, your life wasn't as bad as, you know, here's a preacher that told his testimony and man, they were, they had all kinds of horrible sins and they spent time in prison and they did this and they did that. And, and I look at that, it's like, well, I didn't do any of that stuff, but I did, you know, this stuff. You know what the difference was for me? Is that that person wasn't raised in a Christian home like I was. That person didn't necessarily grow up in Sunday school learning the Bible. I grew up in church learning the Bible and I knew what was right. And you know what? When I got right with the Lord, it was like, God, I am a horrible sinner because I've been doing all of this stuff and I knew better. I was taught better. I may not have had all of the details in my sin IQ, but there were things I knew. The Holy Spirit was revealing it to me. My parents had trained me. A Sunday school teacher had told me I'd heard enough sermons to know that the sins that I was committing were not right. They were sinful, but I wanted to do it anyways. And I believe that God held me to a higher level of accountability because of that. And so you may be saying... You may be saying, well, you know what? I'll just remain ignorant. It's better for me to not know. If I could repeat what a wise pastor told his congregation, he said this, a sin of ignorance is not presumptuous unless that ignorance also is willful, in which case the ignorance itself becomes a presumptuous sin. And folks, that's true. That's 100% true. Even the apostle talks about people being willfully ignorant of God's truth and of God's righteousness. It's no excuse. The apostle Paul, who referred to himself as the chief of sinners, he spoke of his life before his conversion, and he said this in 1 Timothy 1.13, he, he said, who was before, and he's not, he's talking about himself, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but he said, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Paul thought he was doing the right thing in persecuting Christians, but he was doing absolutely the wrong thing. Now, here's an interesting point. And this is what the Lord, this is how the Lord finally got through to me. Paul, if you will remember, on the road to Damascus, he had that experience where he met face to face with Jesus Christ. And you know what Jesus said to Paul? Now, Paul was going around and he was persecuting believers in Jesus. He thought he was serving the Jewish church and he thought he was doing right based on his religion and his training. But on that road to Damascus, do you know what the Lord said to him? He said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? 
Paul was persecuting Christians, Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? You know, it wasn't until I got to the point, listen, all of this struggle in my conscience when I was in those high school years, I I would go home and I knew that the things that I did, the things that I said, the things that I thought, I knew that they were wrong. I knew better. And I would go home and sometimes I'd lay on my pillow at night when I, I don't have my friends around me. I have no nothing but my thoughts. And I would agonize and I'd say, oh Lord, I'm sorry. I'm never going to do that again. Then the very next day I'd go and I'd do it again. And I'd just go through this cycle and this process. And I remember when I, I got in trouble for a particular sin and it cost me and it hurt me. And I said, God, I'm never going to do that again. And I ended up doing it again. I, it was a while. I kept my promise for a while, but ultimately I failed. And I kept trying to say, God, I'm sorry. God, forgive me. I kept trying to get right, but it just wouldn't happen. But about three or four months before I turned 20, it happened. I got right with the Lord. And I found that God gave me grace. He did something supernatural in my heart to where I actually turned and I went in a different direction and I found the strength and the ability to stop sinning and stop living the way that I had. You say, what's the difference? What was different about that time and all the other times? Well, I'll tell you, it was kind of like Paul on the Damascus Road. I finally, it finally sunk into this thick skull and this hard heart that my sin was not just hurting me or my parents, or the Christian people that were praying for me, but my sin was hurting the one who I professed to be my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Once I recognized that my sin was hurting the only one that truly ever loved me, it did something to change my heart. It raised my IQ level about sin, and I It woke me up and it opened up my eyes and then and only then did I find the grace of God to change my lifestyle. God puts our sins in three basic categories. There's sin. Listen, that's anything that misses the mark. That can be a sin that you commit or it can be a sin that you omit. That can be something that God said, thou shalt not, and you do it. Or it can be something that God says, thou shalt, I want you to do this, and you don't do it. It can be anything that misses the mark. And then the Bible refers to something, number two, called iniquity. Now, iniquity can, and there's a lot of different angles of iniquity. It's a very broad term, but basically it can be summarized by the wicked nature or the character of the sinner, your desires, or maybe twisting a standard in order to do what you want to do, or perhaps maybe justifying a behavior. It's not just simply referring as to what you do or don't do, but it refers to the character that produces the sin. By the way, Jesus bore on the cross of Calvary not only our sins and transgressions, but also He bore all of our iniquities. Iniquities are a horrible thing. And then number three, the Bible refers to transgression. 
That's the crossing of the line, breaking a very known commandment. Now listen, the Ten Commandments say, say, thou shalt not kill. But that was 1,500 years or more after Cain slew his brother Abel. Now, the time between the sin of the Garden of Eden and the time of Mount Sinai and the deliverance of the Ten Commandments, that doesn't mean that it was okay to kill someone. It was still God's moral law. But when God wrote it down in stone, it drew a line for all of humanity. In fact, the word transgression doesn't even appear in the Bible until after the law is given. It's crossing the line. God draws the line and we cross it anyways. Sin, iniquity, and transgression. We could say many, many more things about the varieties and the quantities of sin, but the most important thing that we need to understand is the standard of sin and sins is the Word of God, our Creator. Listen, man is different than the beast. Animals kill each other in order to survive, in order to eat. They, I mean, they, they fight each other so that they can mate and propagate, and they do all kinds of disgusting things. Even your dog that you love, they're precious until they're not. Right? Oh, that's so adorable. Look at that mess. They can be disgusting and hideous. And you know, the things that they do may be a hassle. They may be destructive. They may be violent, but they're not sinful because they're not a moral agent. They're just doing what was natural. Now, all of us have that same beast of nature inside of us, but with that, we also have a conscience. You know, the things that I did as a teenager that my conscience bothered me, a lot of it was because I was taught better. But if you would be honest, you would recognize the fact that you committed sins that nobody told you it was wrong, but you felt dirty and guilty inside. You knew if you were honest with yourself that, hey, that was not right. I did something that must be wrong. You know what that is? That's the conscience, that inner voice, and it was endowed upon you by our Creator who created us in His image. All right, for sake of time, I need to get to the second area of understanding. Number two, we need to understand our own sin. Listen, I guarantee you, I promise you, that your sin is far worse than you think it is. Last uh, first week of May, my wife and I went on our vacation and we're down in Pensacola, Florida. And one of the things that my wife loves to do is she loves to gather seashells and uh, gather them off of the beach. And this particular week, there just wasn't hardly the, the tides and the winds and the waves and all of that. It just... We would get out at literally before daylight, right at sunrise, and that's when she likes to walk the beach and find um, unusual shells and and 
you know, she just collects them, and she's been doing that every year, and she has really some very interesting and beautiful shells. But last vacation, there was hardly any shells to be found until the very last morning we were there, the morning that we actually had to pack up and leave and try to get an early start. But she said, can we just go out there one more, one last morning? And so we went out there very early, and we walked up to the beach, and lo and behold, there were shells. This is an actual picture of what we saw. There were shells just lined up all along the beach. And so we didn't have much time. I said, hey, I'll help you look for it. She told me the kind that she's looking for. And so we're just walking up and down. And she's, I mean, she got some really interesting shells on that one morning. And I thought about all of those shells that we would see there on the beach. And you know, if you compare those shells that washed up, wouldn't you agree that the ocean filled with vast shells? We walked maybe a hundred, two hundred feet up and down in each direction. And these are the shells that we saw. But yet, if you looked, you could just see for miles in each direction, the beach was just covered with shells. And that's just a tip of the iceberg compared to all the shells that are still out there in the ocean. And you know, folks, sometimes we see our sins a lot like these shells. These are the ones that we see, we're aware of. But if we compare them to the ones that we're not aware of, or maybe we've forgotten about, or we've dismissed, or we've justified. It's like comparing the shells on the beach to all of the shells that exist in the ocean. To put it a little more simply, think about it in these terms. How would you compare a glass of water that you get out of your kitchen faucet to the water tower that all of that water came from. Oh, you look at that, you open the spigot, and out comes that water. Oh, I can see that. I'm aware of that. But in compared to the entire water system and the tower and all the water that's in the lines throughout the entire infrastructure, it's just a drop in the bucket, if even that. I guarantee you, you and I, if we really saw our life and our soul, our heart, the way that God sees it, we wouldn't see a few shells on the beach or a glass of water from the kitchen sink. We would see it in a much greater magnitude. The biggest issue of sin intelligence is not discerning what is sinful. Most of it we really know if we're honest. But the biggest issue is discerning how serious sin is and its temporal consequences, and more importantly, how serious sin is and its eternal consequences. In other words, seeing sin the way that God sees it. Listen, if you read your Bible there in the book of Exodus, Moses went up to the mount, and God gave him the commandments on tables of stone. Literally, God wrote with his finger, those Ten Commandments, and he handed those stones to Moses, and Moses comes down and presents them to the people. And you know what the text says? The text says that the people couldn't even look at Moses. They had to put a veil over his face. Why? Because his face was shining. 
I mean, it was like it was radioactive. Why was it radioactively shining? Why? Because he had been in the presence and the glory of God. And that is how awesome the law of God is. I mean, incredible. C.H. Spurgeon said it like this. He said, self-righteousness arises partly from pride, but mainly from ignorance of God's law. It is because men know little or nothing concerning the terrible character of the divine law. They foolishly imagine themselves to be righteous. They are not aware of the deep spirituality and the stern severity of the law, or they would have other wiser notions. Once let them know how strictly the law deals with our thoughts, how it brings itself to bear upon every emotion of the inner man, and there is not one creature beneath God's heaven who would dare to think himself righteous in God's sight, in virtue of his own deeds and thoughts. Only let the law be revealed to a man. Let him know how strict the law is and how infinitely just and his self-righteousness will shrivel into nothing. It will become a filthy rag in his sight, whereas he thought it to be a goodly garment. Benjamin Franklin, an interesting character in American history, in his constant effort for self-improvement, made himself a list of 12 virtues. And by the way, uh, Benjamin Franklin believed in God, but he did not believe in salvation by grace, and he did not believe in the absolute authority of God's Word. But he did believe in God, and he made this list of virtues, and these virtues included temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, and chastity. Those of you that are Bible students, you can recognize that Benjamin Franklin didn't get his list from the Scripture. He got them from his social awareness, so to speak. He made this chart, and for each day of the week and the corresponding virtues, he began to track his behavior, and he would put a black mark for each of his own perceived infractions. Shortly after he began this experiment, he wrote, quote, I was surprised to find myself much fuller of faults than I had imagined, end quote. After a particularly virtuous week, in his excitement, he began showing his chart to his friends. One of them pointed out a virtue that he should add to his list, humility. And doesn't it just demonstrate how infinitely evil our nature is, that even when we're humble, we can become proud of it. Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He said, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Oh, listen, we need to understand our own sin. First John 5, verse number 17, says it quite clearly, quite concisely, all unrighteousness is sin. Let me put that in modern terms. If it ain't right, then it's sin. 
I'm even intelligent enough to get that, and I trust that you are as well. In conclusion, God's Word teaches us that the law is our schoolmaster. We don't really understand what a schoolmaster is today. Most uh, most teachers today, compared to teachers of 100 years ago or 200 years ago, those teachers from the past would look at the modern teacher and say, you're an educational babysitter. I'm not knocking any teachers. I appreciate teachers and all that they do. But if you compare the the severity and how they took their job seriously, you know, the old teacher back in the day, if you didn't do your homework and if you were goofing off, you'd get the back of your hand smacked with a ruler. I had a kindergarten teacher. This was back before kindergarten was a public school. If you, when I was a kid where I lived, if you went to kindergarten, it was a private school because the public schools didn't provide it. First grade was where they started. And so my mom sent me to a kindergarten and the, the dear lady in the, she had a classroom set up in her basement and had all these cubicles. And I remember on more than one occasion that I'd be sitting at my cubicle and I'd be goofing off and all these cubicles were basically facing each other and she would walk around the room and you wouldn't hear her sneak up behind you. And if you were goofing off and not doing your work, she would reach over and with her middle finger and her thumb, she would thump you on the head. I hated that. I mean, there's a spot on your head where if you get thumped right there, it just stings and it's like, ow! And I got thumped a few times. Can you imagine, can you imagine doing that in your class today? I'm talking to one of our school teachers. I mean, they, you would be in real, really bad trouble. And yet some of you old timers remember I had teachers like that and even worse. And then if you go back 200 years ago, it's like they would have loved to have my kindergarten teacher. The law is our schoolmaster. That was a serious, serious uh, concept that Paul brought before the churches at Galatia. He said in Galatians 3.24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. And this is an important truth. And that is that the law, you know, some people think, well, why does that preacher have to just make me feel so sinful and so wicked? Because you're not going to go get a cure until you realize that you're sick. Listen, do you, do you, you know, I've known people, and this is just, this doesn't make any sense to me. I know people that are having symptoms that they think, hey, this might be cancer. Well, we need to take you to the doctor. No, I don't want to know. Like, what? You don't want to know? And that may sound kind of ridiculous, but it's the same mentality that the average person has in our culture today that, hey, I don't want you to tell me my sin. I don't want to find out that I'm sick. But the reality of it is, whether you find out about it or not, you have a sin sickness. And the best thing that can happen to you is for the Holy Spirit, as a great physician, diagnose you and you realize and recognize that, hey, I've been lenient with myself. 
but I'm going to stand before a holy God and a righteous judge, and he's not going to be near as lenient on me as I am on me. It's our schoolmaster. Our entire culture has been morally dumbed down. We are either completely ignorant of God's law, or perhaps maybe we view them as the Ten Suggestions rather than the Ten Commandments. Paul said in Romans 7.13 that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. We took the Ten Commandments out of our schoolhouses uh, quite a number of years ago. And uh, to be quite honest with you, I when the Ten Commandments was in the schoolhouse, when prayer was in the schoolhouse, can anybody name a mass shooting at a schoolhouse that ever took place? In fact, most of you would say, I don't think that back then that anybody ever thought about going into a schoolhouse and killing innocent children. It, it wasn't even thought of. It wasn't like, you know, there were young people that were struggling with this temptation. Oh, should I go kill them or should I not? No, it was unthinkable. Why? Because there was a presence, a standard of sin that that law, thou shalt not kill. They recognized that. And even people that weren't necessarily believers in God, there was that seed that was sown that, hey, maybe, maybe they're, they're right. And if I do this, I'm going to have to stand before God. Or if I do this, then I may be endangering my eternal soul. Hey, who wants to go and spend eternity in hell and burn forever? I don't want to. I don't want you to. But that's a truth of God's Word, and it was in our culture at one day, but we are so dumbed down that people are oblivious. We have no standard of sin today, hardly even in our churches. The average believer commonly says, oh, I don't see anything wrong with that. Or God just wants me to be happy. Or, that's your truth. I have my truth. These are all just ignorant statements. And, I mean, just talk about morally challenged, retarded, if you will, for people to even think this way because it's so far from what thus saith the Lord. Your standard of sin will change drastically when you stand before the judge one day. Your eyes will be opened. Romans 5.20 says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Now that's where, that's the diagnosis of our sin sickness and the resulting death and tragedy and condemnation. But thank God, the second part of that verse says, But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Listen, this is not bad news. This is good news. God is diagnosing us with a sin problem, a sin condition that's going to lead to death and hell. But with that diagnosis, the Lord says, hey, I've got a cure for you. It's called my grace. It's called my son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and shed his precious blood so that you can be redeemed, so that you can be cleansed of that sin, so that Jesus can take all of your sin 
even though it's like that water tower, even like it's the vastness of the ocean, Jesus was holy and righteous enough to bear the sins of the whole world. And he bore your sins personally there on that cross of Calvary. He bore them for you, and if you will receive him, he wants to give you his grace and take all of his righteousness. Listen, his righteousness is even greater than the oceans. His righteousness is greater than the universe, and he wants to put that on your account so that when we stand before the judge one day, he'll look at us and he'll say, yeah, I don't, looks like, Looks like you're perfect. Looks like you're righteous. You look just like my son Jesus. And that's what God wants to do for us. This world looks at a holy God with a holy law who says, Thou shalt not. And they say, God's a bully. He's a meanie. How dare him put any expectations on us. But I remind all of us this morning, he created us for him. He's not there for us. And when we stand before him, all of our self-righteous justification, all of this spoiled brat mentality that is so common, God's going to look at us and he'll just say, depart from me, ye accursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This isn't what I wanted for you, son. This isn't what I wanted for you, daughter. I wanted you to be my child. I wanted to save you but you wouldn't allow me to. You would not intelligently acknowledge your sin. Listen, folks, no conviction means no conversion. Until we face our sin and are honest with ourselves and God, then there can be no salvation. Boost your sin IQ. Be like David. Be honest with yourself. And more importantly, be honest with God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for the understanding that you have provided for us. Lord, as David also said in the Psalms, he said, Lord, if thou shouldest mark iniquities, who shall stand? Lord, our iniquities, Lord, they overwhelm us if we're honest about it. If we've been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, God, we would see ourselves in despair, destruction with no hope. But Lord, I thank you that you offered hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray now that if anyone here is this morning is lost in their sins, that they would realize that they can trust Jesus Christ as their Savior and have their sins forgiven, washed away in your precious blood. Have your will and way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you remain seated with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? As the pianist plays softly, I'd like to give you some time here this morning to respond.